Hi, I'm Val Hart in San Antonio, Texas, founder of Val Hart and Friends at ValHart.com. Welcome to the Real Dr. Doolittle Show, the show for animals and the people who love them. I've been called a real-life Dr. Doolittle many times in my career as an expert animal communicator, behaviorist, pet psychic, and master healer. My mission and passion is to improve the lives of animals the world over by helping humans learn how to speak their language, how to understand their viewpoints, and heal. After all, our love of animals helps us be better humans, and the more balanced and healthy we are, the more balanced and healthy they can be, too. Be sure and look for my CDs on iTunes, and to find out more about my work and to receive your free Quick Start Animal Talk course, just go to my website at valhart.com. While you're there for a limited time, you can also apply for a complimentary Happy Animal Assessment Session. And if you want to learn how to be your own Dr. Doolittle, check out the world's first complete animal communication made easy system available now on my website at valhart.com. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Val Hart, the real Dr. Doolittle, and today I'm talking with Joe Camp. He's a film writer, a producer, a director, an author. He's a passionate speaker, and he's the man behind the canine superstar, Benji. He's also produced five Benji movies, and he was just telling me that he's got a new one coming out as well. Very exciting, Joe. You've written, produced, and directed seven theatrical motion pictures, including all the Benji movies, cumulatively grossing well over the equivalent of $600 million, which is amazing, which has made you one of the most successful independent filmmakers of all time. Congratulations. Wow. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Your newest career is as an author in your recent best-selling book, The Soul of a Horse, Life Lessons from the Herd, is now in its seventh printing and is changing the lives of horses and people all across the planet. In your latest book, the Soul of a Horse blogged, The Journey Continues, picks up where The Soul of a Horse left off with the adoption of a pregnant Mustang. I love Mustangs. And it continues through you and your wife's Kathleen's move from the dry, rocky hillside pasture of Southern California to the wet, grassy hillsides of your new Tennessee home, which I know is quite a change. So, yeah, a big change. A big change. I bet. Oh, my gosh. Um, so welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Val, for having me. It is, it is my pleasure, and I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thanks. Um, let's. What I want to talk about before we get into the horses, which is you know what I would, I, what we're here to talk about today, your books. I have to ask you. I just have to. You're just going to have to bear with me. But I want to know more about our the world's most loved dog star, Benji. How in the world did the Benji movies come to be? Well, it is a long story, and there's actually a book on that called Who Needs Hollywood? <laughs> that uh, tells the whole story. But the, okay. uh, it's, I, the very beginning was during a period in time when I was working for an advertising agency, yet was wanting to break into the movie business. I had wanted to go to UCLA and had not been accepted, and mm. you know, I thought at that time that my life was over, that I was never going to be able to make <laughs> movies and whatnot, and, and uh, so I was getting up at the, you know, like four o'clock every morning and writing for two hours before going to my job as a in an advertising agency, 
And my wife and I were watching one Sunday night. This is way back, a little longer than I want to admit. And <laughs> the the old Disney Sunday night, Wonderful World of Color, I think was the name of it, show. And this was before DVDs or videos or anything. And they were doing a, a kind of a retrospective on all the classic animated features that they had mm-hmm. done. And there was a piece on Lady and the Tramp. Oh, and they were that doing movie. one of my favorite as a kid. Yeah. And while we were doing the dishes, you know, we began to talk about, I wonder if it would be possible to do that kind of story from the point of view of the dog, with the dog being the three-dimensional character, the heart and soul of the of the movie, but do it with real dogs, not animated characters. Wow. And, and uh, not with... You know, Rex Allen saying, and now Benji thinking, and whatnot. <laughs> and we finally talked it into a corner, saying, you know, how in the world do you tell a real story, a full story, a movie-length story without dialogue? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my wife went to bed, and I stayed up reading, and we had a little Yorkshire Terrier whose name was Benji. Okay. Uh, and he, he stayed up with me, and I got to paying attention to, you know, a siren would go down the street or a dog would bark, you know, in the yard next door or whatever. And just the way that he was reacting to all of this. And so I kind of jumped down on the floor on my knees and started doing silly stuff and you know, watching what his face was telling me and and wound up over in a corner, hovered up and shivering and like I was afraid and the dog is looking at me like, what in the world is the matter with you? <laughs> My and, dad's and, I, and you could read that. You know, you could yeah. actually read that. And, yeah. and so what I went to bed with that night was the the fact that, you know, dogs do talk. There is dialogue if you're really up there paying attention and, yes, and you know, close where you're, where you, that's what you're seeing and watching. Yeah. And, and I woke up the next morning at four to go in and work on the project that I was working on, whatever it was, and, and pushed it aside <laughs> and wrote the entire Benji story in about wow. two hours. And, wow. And it just all came out. It's a, you know, a God thing because it just came flowing out faster yes. than I am. I, mean, I, I would be lucky if I get two or three pages double spaced a day of screenplay, <laughs> which is, you know, not very many words. Uh, and this whole thing came rolling out there. And that was way before it actually got done. And because I was still working for this advertising agency, we passed it around Hollywood and everybody kind of laughed and said, you know, it's already been done, Lady in the Tramp. What are you doing? What are you sending this around for? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, you don't get it. Well, it didn't matter. They didn't mm-hmm. care. And years passed. And, you know, we finally, uh, I, I left the advertising agency to go to an opportunity that, with a film uh, television commercial production house in Dallas and to actually start directing uh, television commercials and learn something about the, the film business okay. and how it works and wound up forming our own company two or three years after that and then wound up uh, a couple of years after that raising the money to produce this picture independently and did and was very excited about it, took it out to Hollywood and then screened it for every major studio and they all turned it down. Wow. Oh, so then okay. we had the opportunity to either throw it in the trash or figure it out. Yeah. And we actually wound up forming our own distribution company, going back to the investor well and raising even more money, mm-hmm. uh, which was not 
a particularly easy thing to do because they said, hey, wait a minute, you know, we, we you said you never made a movie, but we believed that you could, so we invested in the movie, and now you, nobody wants to distribute it, and you're saying you can learn the distribution business? I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, we ultimately okay. did, and that's what we, we distributed wow. the entire movie from our office in Dallas wow. worldwide. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Well, and, uh, you, you, so, the, so that's the short version of the long story, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I'm really understanding something about you. You really do believe that anything is possible. If you work hard enough, you have the inspiration, the guidance, and you have faith in yourself, you can do anything. And, and passion. I think that you know I've, I've learned in, in retrospect and looking backwards that you know when you when you passionately believe in something then that covers just a whole myriad of obstacles because what you're everything you're trying to do particularly if it's a little bit out of the norm mm-hmm. uh which seems to be everything we've ever gotten involved with yeah. but if it is you, you know you know you're going to hit roadblocks you're going to hit closed doors you're going to have to find your way through the maze and all too often, I see today people just hitting, running up against that wall and saying, "Oh heck, well I can't get around that." And turn around, walk away, and start off on something else. Yeah, and if you're really passionate about it, you'll find a way. You'll get over that wall. You'll go around it. You'll dig under it. You'll do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what carried us through. I believed in this property. A lot of people have said, "Oh, it's so great! You're a movie director." I said, "No, not really. You know, I'm. I, I guess you'd have to call me a storyteller." And movies at that time were the vehicle that, mm-hmm. yeah. and and, and so there are strong values buried under all of the the entertainment with the Benji movies, you know, and the value of hope and love and persistence toward a goal, which was my own story of persistence toward a goal, mm-hmm. and and you know, and I believe so passionately in that that I just. You know, was not going to let the naysayers say nay, and so we found our way through the maze. And even that took us a while because it was advertising and marketing is my background. I had no mm-hmm. fear of that side of it. Mm-hmm. And yet every decision I made was dead wrong, and it took us two full summers or a full year and a half to get it all together, get it right, get it tested, and then finally go out in reality with the movie that Variety reported that year was the number three movie of the year behind Jaws and something else, I think Towering Inferno. Wow. And uh, that's, that's just so miraculous. Was, what an amazing story. Yeah, it was. It, I, I look back at it now and say, holy moly, <laughs> how did we do that? <laughs> but it... Uh, uh-huh. It, you know, like I said before, though, I think you know all too often, and unfortunately, you know, for for both of my wives, one died in nineteen nineteen eighty nine, uh, and actually no, nineteen ninety seven, and and my current wife, you know, for, unfortunately for both of them, you know, money has never been the object, and I think that also is part of the driving force that you know when you're looking at the at what you're accomplishing, what you're trying to accomplish, uh, and that accomplishment has some some bearing and factor with other people in making their lives better. 
that, that makes a huge difference to me. And people who are purely focused on the money, I'm going to do this job because I can make a lot of money doing it. That's not what the American dream was all about. And you know, the American dream concept that you can do anything you want to do in this country was founded in accomplishment of worthwhile goals more than it was in in you know bank accounts, and and so that's always been my I guess upfall or downfall depending upon which side of the fence you're looking at it from. <laughs> but the you know the money just kind of you know took care of itself, and we were focused on on doing our work as well as we could and getting the message out as best we could. Yeah. Oh, I could talk about this for a long time. I have so many questions for you. We may have to come back and do another interview on Benji. I'm, I'm <laughs> happy, to, happy to do that. Good. I, well, I'm, I'm going to invite you back. So I want to hear a lot more about Benji. This is a fascinating story of how the movies came into be. And I'm sure that we could talk for days about what all happened behind the scenes and how you trained and set it up and and all the things you went through uh, in doing that that we could all learn so much from. Don't uh, don't let me forget, and I will I'll send you a copy of that that book, okay. and uh, you can kind of get a sense of all of that. And then there's there's also a, a Benji method. Mm-hmm. Uh, book out there, which is what I learned from the greatest trainer that ever lived, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, mm-hmm. All the the, uh, the compassionate and relationship-based training methods that he used with the original Benji, and that we used with this last Benji movie, which was Benji Off the Leash a few mm-hmm. years ago, and mm-hmm. that dog actually is like the first one is a rescue from shelters and lives mm. with us. It's the first one that actually lives with us. So oh, wow. I didn't have to go through separation anxiety at the end of the movie when, <laughs> as I did on the first couple. But uh, yeah. Yeah. it's uh, that's a and, and it's, what's kind of neat. I've this is way getting off point, I guess. But the you know, the, the the Kindle and Nook book, you know, the ebook versions mm-hmm. of of these books, uh, like the Benji Method, uh, the Benji Method has 90 minutes of video links built mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. and you're sitting there on your iPad or your phone or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. reading this book, and you come to a link, you just touch it, and the video comes up. Wow! And it's so cool, you know. You get, you know, double your money, and they usually cost more than the print versions of the book. I mean, cost less than the print versions of the book. And the same wow. is true with Soul of a Horse blog. There's a ton of oh, video wow. links and resource links and everything. And that one, and on the ebook version of it, you can actually click the the link and go right to the video to see what you just finished reading about. Wow. So Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I, I, this is going to be super for textbooks, I think. You know, oh, okay. yeah. Just imagine going back through college with nothing but a, a cell phone or an iPad in your, in yeah. your uh, yeah. backpack and never having to worry about you know lugging all these books and where you left it. And right. You got all your notes right there within right. the book itself because you can put notes in these e-books. Yeah. And I, was, I didn't, you know, I was one of those holdouts, you know, oh, I want to have a real book and paper pages yeah. and all of that. And <laughs> Kathleen's been reading all of her books on her Android cell phone for 
mm-hmm. six, eight months. And mm-hmm. I said, I just can't, you know, I want to turn pages. And she finally said, look at this video. I said, where did you get that? She said, well, it was just in the book. It was in the book. I just book. clicked it. What? Oh, and look, all these, all these pictures are in color. You know, there's 175 pictures in the Soul of a Horse blog, yeah. uh, mostly of hers. She's a fantastic photographer, and, wow. and you can't put that many pictures in a book in color, you know, without no, the book no. costing oh, nine million dollars. No. So, and on the the e-books, they can be in color. It's just cool. Yeah. And you can expand them, and you can you know look at them more closely in the digital version. Right, and, and you can change. <laughs> You can correct your mistakes. You can add a chapter. You can do this. You, anytime, anytime I change the the upload for uh, Benji Method or Solo Horse Blog or any of these these ebooks like this, mm-hmm. you know, they send you a note mm-hmm. that says uh, the next time you go on, click on your Soul of a Horse Blog because we have a new version for you. Wow! And it doesn't cost a nickel. It just, it's automatic once you've paid the price to buy the book. Every time there's a you know updated version, it mm-hmm. comes to you automatically. Wow! Oh my gosh! So so Joe, all that, that's gonna, that, that's the reason it'll never make it to textbooks because those publishers won't. <laughs> they don't they don't want that. They want you to have to go out and oh, buy God, the, no. the new version. That's how they make their fortunes. Yeah. I know that's how they keep all the students poor. That's right. Spend fortunes on these. And it, with two going into college next year, I am understanding <laughs> that now. Very clearly, yes. It's uh, uh, so, uh, talking of, speaking of that, uh, so people can buy these books. They can get them through Amazon, um, anywhere books are sold. Correct? Yeah, right. Barnes and Noble or right. bookstores or, or okay. uh, you know, whatever. And uh, okay, and they can buy them in either version, you know, the print or the okay, the ebook. Versions. Okay, and, and then the signed copies of the print versions. I haven't oh. figured out how to sign the e-books yet. <laughs> signed <laughs> copies of, the, of okay. the print versions are available on our website, thesoulofahorse.com. Right. So your website is thesoulofahorse.com. Soulofahorse.com. And uh, there's also benji.com for that side of the fence. And, oh, cool. Okay. Uh, and they're interlinked as well. And, okay. And there's a blog, thesoulofahorse.com slash blog. Uh, which began. we, uh, you know, it's kind of wherever the last book left off with a continuation of and and the stories of our learning process, our journey, because we're still learning every day. And and that's what the original book, Soul of a Horse, was. Is, is it was We came into this horse world three or four years ago mm-hmm. truly and literally without a horse or a clue. We didn't <laughs> have clue. any... <laughs> any idea uh, what we were doing, and, and, and Kathleen, we had bought this piece of property, this house, and on five acres, three acres, two and a half acres actually, uh, out in the what the only sticks left in Southern California, and it happened to have a couple of horse stalls on it. We'd sit out on the front porch in the late afternoon and watch the sunset over the over the west, over the horse stalls, and say, gee, wouldn't it be nice you know, have a couple oh. of horses wandering around down there mm-hmm. in, the, in the stalls? <clears throat> and we talked about it enough that when my birthday came up, Kathleen threw me in the car and said, come on. And I knew it had to have something to do with birthday. And Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I am that suspicious. And she <laughs> drove down the hill and drove past the Animal Rescue League in Escondido, uh, and I said, no, we got we got more dogs than we need. They 
dog, and she pulls into a park, and there's a horse trailer with three saddled horses, and she was taking me on a six-hour trail ride. From wow. Day. And three weeks later, we owned three horses. <laughs> <laughs> and I can attest to the fact that, you know, a six-hour trail ride and having a couple of stalls in your yard is not a good reason for going out and buying three horses. Mm, maybe maybe a little what's more. Going on. <laughs> but, but that's 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 where the whole thing began because we didn't have a clue. Yeah. And and the very first thing we stumbled on, we were making what I call the uh, the new horse owners. Uh, a required visit to Boot Barn, you know, to stock up on stuff before the horses arrive. Uh-huh. And Kathleen stumbled on an article by Monty Roberts, who is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, had the New York Times best-selling book, The Man Who Listens to Horses, and yeah. was uh, an inspiration to Robert Redford on in making the the movie The Horse Whisperer, and and he has a a thing that's called join up. He he spent a lot of time out with wild horses watching the way that they interact and work with each other and how they set up their hierarchy and their language basically. Yes. And and he has this thing that he calls join up and in, in in a nutshell what what he's doing is using the language of the horse so that in 30 minutes he can take a horse that's never even had a halter on it before into a round pen and have it choose him to be their trusted leader and have a saddle, bridle, and a rider on the horse in 30, 35 minutes. Wow. At the horse's choice, Mm -hmm. with no stress to the horse. Absolutely blew me away. I just could not. So when when our first three came, my cash is cover boy on the the sole of a horse. Uh, I took to the round pen the first day. And and I had watched this DVD, you know, sixteen times, and read the book at least <laughs> twice, and <clears throat> went down to the round pen and and did a join up. And it all has to do with being a predator and giving the horse actual comfort in in something that he understands, and that's predatory behavior mm-hmm. and the way he responds to it, and when the norm doesn't happen when he's responding to it and at some point you turn and become submissive mm-hmm. and you turn your back to the horse and you say okay as you can see I'm a predator mm-hmm. but I am not here to hurt you and I haven't hurt you and I would like to be in relationship with you and I would like for you to trust me and it's your choice and you wait mm-hmm. And when that horse came up behind me and touched me on the shoulder, hmm. saying, in effect, yes, I do trust you. I choose and I you. do want to be in a relationship with you. I just broke down crying. Oh, wow. Oof. And <clears throat> I turned around to him and rubbed him, walked away, and he followed me right off my shoulder everywhere I walked in that round mm-hmm. pen. Mm-hmm. And I said, I will. I, 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 I have no clue what doing right by you is but I will find out, and I will do it. Mm-hmm. And that's where it all began. And what we what we found out fairly quickly is that we were on a collision course with a <clears throat> discovery that really most domestic horses are being kept and cared for in a manner that is diametrically contradictory to their genetic design. Yeah. Let's and, talk about that. 
Tell us and, more. And that. And that's what became our story, our journey, is finding this discoveries and what we did and how and why and how it re- re- you know, reflected in the relationship. Okay. So you said that it's important to replicate as closely as possible the wild horse lifestyle that's evolved over 52 million years and is deeply embedded in the soul of the horse. Right. So what do you mean by that, Joe? Well, what we discovered, it began with with a simple discovery built around the horse's hooves. Because I was doing a lot of research, and and Cash came to me with two shoes on his fronts and no shoes on his backs. Okay. And I was being told by everybody, what? Well, and we had concrete and asphalt everywhere on this property. Mm-hmm. And, and I was being told by everybody, so you can't have a horse barefoot out on concrete and asphalt. Their feet will crack and fall apart, and mm-hmm. you know you'll have a horse walking on his nubs. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 as far as I knew, horses were born with shoes on. I didn't <laughs> know any better at the time. And, mm-hmm. and so I started researching. You know, I started with feet and hooves, and wound up falling into Jamie Jackson's studies with the wild horses. And, you know, probably more than anything else, I'm a logistician. I mean, that's probably my longest suit is the logic. And and maybe it was because I liked math and, I, you know, problem solving and that that's kind of what, you know, logic is. And, Mm -hmm. and, And the first time I read that, wait a minute, the horse's hoof, is supposed to flex every time it touches the ground, like think toilet plunger. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and what that's doing? I, mean, I used to think the hoof was just a big old wad of you know fingernail or something, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. not. It's a very intricate interior of the you know the horse's hoof, the inner structures, and it's very vascular. Lots of blood flowing through. They're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And when a horse's hoof flexes. It's, it's 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 like this toilet plunger sucking in an enormous amount of blood from the leg mm-hmm. and circulating it through the hoof and then when he lifts it off the ground again and it in effect pops back it shoots that blood back up the leg mm-hmm. which right. is helping the heart you know those long skinny legs get that stuff up there and a horse I you know I discovered fairly quickly that a horse that is that is barefoot will have a ten percent less heart rate than wow. a horse that's wearing a metal shoe. Wow. And just that okay. that alone, you know, was saying, oh, wait a minute, but the fact that a, a, a horse with a metal shoe nailed to its foot cannot get the kind of circulation it needs, many of them can't get any, you know, mm. depending on the kind of shoe and the type of, you know, how it's nailed on and all of that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and which means that uh, the hoof is, you know, not getting any circulation at all. And then when somebody pulls off the shoes and says, oh, my horse needs shoes because he's so sore when you take the shoes off. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's really unhealthy what's been happening to him mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, with that shoe on there. It's like when you cross your leg and forget about it for a little while and, mm-hmm. you know, you're cutting off the circulation down to the foot yeah. Yeah. and yeah. then you suddenly you jump up and, whoa, almost fall on your face because... Yeah. The, when when the blood goes when the blood circulation goes away, then the nerve endings quit working, mm. and so you don't feel it. So in effect, mm. the you know a shoe anesthetizes 
the horse's hoof from any damage that it's doing by virtue of the lack of circulation. And when you pull that shoe off on many horses, we had one that took eight months to to ready, but you know, which is the time it takes to grow a full new hoof from the hairline down to the ground. And but anyway, the the trying to stay on point. The when I read all of this about you know what a hoof is supposed to do and why wild horses have such rock solid and you see them out there in the, the worst of Nevada and and mm-hmm. uh, Eastern California and whatnot deserts and and where there's lava you know beds and they're just gliding over it like it was nothing and uh beautifully fit and and you know just just living like a, you know, a horse should live it suddenly became very very clear that something was amiss with you know what we were doing and it bothered me a lot because cash had shoes on his front and shoes on and no shoes on his back <clears throat> and i was i began to use talk about this wild horse model as it were you know of why the wild horses you know and, and logic tells you that you know, if they they're a flight animal, yeah. uh, which which means you know a prey animal, which means that the predators come after them. And if they didn't have rock solid feet to run from cougars and wolves and things like that, uh, we'd have never heard of them. They'd have been extinct a long time ago. Long time. Yeah. And as it is, they've been out there, you know, for a full fifty-two million years, doing quite well without us. As a matter of fact. And and so all of this kind of came together, and I started saying, you know, the wild horses do great, so you know, why shouldn't the domestic? Oh, we've bred the hoof right off the domestic horse. We, you can't. They're not even the same species anymore. Is what people were telling me. And so dig, dig, dig. You know, I, I say I want more than just hearsay. I want to know. And got into the science of the whole thing and found out that it would take a minimum of five thousand years, more likely closer to ten to change any base genetics of any species, horses or otherwise. And so you can, you know, breed and selectively breed horses until the cows come home, and it's not going to change the base genetics of the horse. What they need to live and exist for 50 million years is still there Mm -hmm. if they're given the opportunity to let it come out and to use it. And that's where the whole philosophy came from. And, and, and you know, the, as I was asking all this and trying to figure it out, and they were telling me that the wild horse didn't matter any, what? you know, anymore. That the, that the wild horse and the domestic horse were just different species. And I'm sitting there looking at Cash with two shoes on and two shoes off. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, well, does that mean his 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 backside is wild and his front side is domestic? <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I just. Mm-hmm. But I, I finally got enough of this put together that I just called the vet and I said, the shoes are coming off. And he said, which one? I said, all of them. Mm-hmm. By that time, we had six. Mm-hmm. And this was probably nine, ten, eleven months into the the whole learning experience. And he said, well, don't you want to do just one at a time and see what you know how it works? And I said, no. I mean, look look at the facts. These are facts. It's not opinion. This is not my opinion. This is the absolute fact of how a horse is supposed to live and why and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you know, it's your horses, whatever. And we pulled all six of them and began to have them trimmed, found a, a trimmer who understood the wild horse cycle, which all we're trying to do is replicate what they'd be doing to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mm-hmm. making up stuff 
that humans can do for horses, which is unfortunately most of the problem mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. with horses and the way that they live, is is the humans try to inject themselves into it and say, I think this is what he should have. And no, what he should have is what he would be doing for himself. I don't care whether it's lifestyle, diet, feet, whatever. Mm-hmm. How would he be living if he was out in the Great Basin of the Western United States, which is where the horse evolved and where all horses on the planet came from mm. because they went across the Bering Strait back when that was, you know, the ice bridge and whatnot mm-hmm. over there and went out into the rest of the world. And that's all tracked and backed up scientifically with facts and butt bones and and whatnot. And, uh, and so the bottom line came to that every horse on the planet is genetically identical. And every horse on the planet can live and be as healthy and have as healthy a hoof and a body and a lifestyle as those horses in the wild if they're given the opportunity to live that way. And so that's what we've tried to do from that point forward is is, is to follow and try to replicate what our research says is the way that they would be living if they were in the wild. And that becomes a little bit more difficult when you move from the high desert of California to the uh, low, buggy, (laughs) wet (laughs) pastures of of Middle Tennessee because that's not their natural environment. Their natural environment is, is is, like I say, that high desert country. And they're, they're built to to grow enough hoof to be worn down because they'll travel 10 to 20, sometimes 25 miles a day looking for food and water and running from predators and whatnot. And that's a lot of wear and tear on the foot. And so the the Mother Nature has said you will have enough to take care of it. Mm -hmm. And they're gorgeous. I mean, their feet out there in the wild are beautiful. And, And in California, ours were virtually maintaining themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we would do every eight weeks, we would do what I call a maintenance trim. It's basically just rounding off the, you put a Mustang roll around it because that wear on the, around the edges is what keeps them from cracking and breaking and being too thin. Mm-hmm. And, and you just make sure the roll is in good shape and they're getting enough wear and, and off you go. Over here, we're trimming every six weeks and almost always cutting some hoof wall, trimming mm-hmm. some hoof wall because they, they're not, they don't get the kind of wear over here that they yeah. would be getting in California or out in the wild, and okay. so there's a little more to it when you have them out of their their genetic environment, so to speak. Okay, let's. I'll shut up now and let you talk. No, no, no. This, this is is fascinating. <laughs> I um, let's keep on that theme. I, I want to go back to some more about the books themselves, but I'm really enjoying this theme. So we've talked about why. It's, the importance of going barefoot, which makes so much sense to me, you know. And if we don't have a hoof, we don't have a horse. Right. Right. So, and I've long known, you know, if we freeze and lock the hoof down with a shoe, if it's too small, it doesn't allow the growth. It do, and like you said, it doesn't allow flexibility. It doesn't support the circulation. It doesn't do the function of the. Uh, it, it it blocks the hoof's ability to do its function. Uh, for the health of the horse, and we lose the health of the horse. So that, I think, is so brilliant, and I'm so impressed with your tackling of the problem, the way you approached it, and that you didn't listen to the prevailing so-called wisdom of the day, um, which you just turned it on its ear. 
Yeah, what a what, thank you so much, Joe. <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you, you can, really I can good. say we're continuing to learn because the, that was yeah. that was step one. But what I found out very quickly mm-hmm. is it's not just taking the shoes off and then leaving a horse in a stall and feeding him, you know, a bag of sugar from you know some manufacturer who right. is more worried about whether the horse likes it than whether or not it's good for him. And and etc. And 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 come to find out that movement movement is vitally important because in the wild they move ten to twenty miles a day, right. and so setting them up so that they can get that kind of movement on their own or ensuring it in one way or another, which we've done. I just posted a new video on the Soul of a Horse channel on okay. YouTube okay. that is everything we did in California with what we call a paddock paradise or a tracking system because we only had an acre and a half on mm. a very steep hillside mm. where the horses, where six horses could live. And so we set it up in a way to where we were actually getting 8 to 12 miles a day of movement with wow. those horses. And they were eating around the clock, which is what they do in the wild. You know, they nibble little bits of forage. And they have little bitty tummies and they have a back gut, hind gut that that is expecting forage to be passing through it almost 24 hours a day. Yeah. And so it puts out acid to do what it needs to do with all of that. And when that when that forage is not passing through there, that acid does damage to the inside. So diet alone can cause, you know, problems in the in with the hoof and with the general health of the horse. Movement and lack of movement can cause it. And the worst thing you can do, I mean, I know this hits a lot of people hard because they can... They, they want their horse, they love their horse, and the only place they can keep it is in some boarded stall. Yeah. But that's the worst thing in the world you can do for a horse, you know, yeah. because it's a horse in the wild will be in the middle of whatever wherever he is mm-hmm. so that he can see all the horizons, so that he knows and he has advance warning when, you know, cougars and wolves are coming mm-hmm. their way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have sense enough to know that if the wind is blowing from the east, they better be looking west because they'll smell it from the east, but they need to see it or hear it mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. it's sneaking up on them from the west. And, and you know, they, they know that if they eat this particular kind of grass that has a lot of sugar in it because it's a cool season grass and it's loaded mm-hmm. with fructan, that they better eat some Bermuda or some, some Johnson grass or whatever that has very low sugar, and balance themselves. And they know how to do that. I mean, it, and genetically, they know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like we humans that are sitting there thinking, oh, I had all this sugar, well, I better go take an insulin shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> they, but they know inherently what to eat. And I've watched ours over here in Tennessee. And, you know, some of them probably never even seen this much grass before. Mm-hmm. And and yet they know, they'll go, they'll shift from this kind of grass to that kind of grass. They might eat two stems of clover, but that's it. And they'll go over here and eat a, a weed or a bramble and they'll gnaw a little off the tree. And it, It's amazing how they how they can take care of themselves when given the options and the choices that, yeah. that, that they need to do so. Yeah. And and it's a, you know, a, uh, just an amazing journey that we continue to learn. And and, and we we took our horses. We, first off, we went to free choice hay. Mm-hmm. We learned that. I mean, that they, they have the choice twenty four hours a day to eat or not eat hay in California. Over here, they have the options of hay plus 
grass and weeds and brambles mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. and flowers and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so it's manipulated and handled differently. But, you know, we, we started with the free choice hay, and that means every, and we would put it out in 100 and 150 different piles around this one and a half acre area. Yeah. So they had to move constantly to, to deal with it and to, and, and to get it. And then they got their supplement feeds and so forth in the morning and the evening. But we threw out the, the bagged, pelleted food that was loaded up with molasses and mutated oils and you know, all of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and went to a a, a, a forage, basically, a, well, what I call chopped salad. It's kind of a chopped uh, orchard and timothy grass that has some vitamins and minerals built into it. We don't use it as a whole feed. We just use it as a carrier for the supplements that we use, which are based upon wherever we are, what they're naturally getting from that environment or from hay or from whatever else they were, they were feeding them, trying to, again, replicate what they would have and have the options of out in the wild. And, they, and all of that makes, a, you know, in the final analysis of very, very big differences. But, you know, getting the shoes off was a, was a fantastic start. And it's, that's been now over three years ago. And they were... You know, these guys have never looked back, not a one of them, or us. You know, mm-hmm. they've had super healthy hooves, no colics, no laminitis, no, you know, they're happy, healthy, and the relationships are better. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's, oh, no, if I put my horse out in the pasture, I'll never see him again. He won't come to me. You mm-hmm. get the relationship right in the beginning. Yeah. Yes, you will. Yes. Yeah. I mean, all I have to do is go out back and call when it's time to feed. Mm-hmm. If they, I mean, they hear the gator driving down to the barn, they'll be there waiting on me. Mm-hmm. But if not, you know, if I holler at them, they'll they'll be down in a moment. And uh, yeah. uh, that relationship is really very, very good with all six of ours because we decided to start every one of them just the same way we started cash. And when you get that relationship, I mean, I, I know several of the big super clinician trainer types and so forth. Stacy Westfall is one some of your listeners may know that mm-hmm. amazing lady. Uh and she said the best thing that she ever did for her training is to not do any at all until the relationship was right with the horse. Wow. And that's I think, you know, a very, very true statement because once you're in relationship they trust you and they've made the choice on their own to do that then that takes the willingness quotient way, way, way up mm-hmm. because they're not doing it anymore because you're dominating them. They're doing it because they they want to. Yeah, they like you. They want to. They enjoy being with you. You know, I've also always, you know, told my clients and students, if if your animal isn't delighted to see you and spend time with you of their own free choice, something's wrong with the relationship. You need to pay attention. Yeah, need to back up. Back up, yeah. Back that, back that puppy up. <laughs> there's a, there's a great. You know, I, I, I wish this was our video, but there's a great video from a guy by the name of Frederick Pinion, who is a French guy and he's living in Italy, I think, right now, somewhere over there. But he, I've, I've seen, and he's got a book called Gallop to Freedom. It's just wonderful. Kathleen read it and said, "Can we just move in with them?" <laughs> but he. He is 
so strongly, you know, on the relationship thing, and all of his training is a is a collaboration, you know, with the horse. Okay. It is not. He does not dominate the horse. He leads the horse, but everything that he does, the horse has a choice, has an option. You know, horse can give input, and he said he never once goes out into the arena for a show that he has a clue what's going to happen. Wow. And because if the horse decides to go this way, this, this, but but what to see these horses work, and he's he works in a huge arena. And this particular video is uh, uh, is posted on our stuff, but it's, you can just look up Frederick Pinion, P-I-G-N-O-N, on Google and go right to it. He has ultimately winds up working with three black Frisians, one at a time, then two comes out, and then number three comes out. And they're free to go wherever they want to go in this arena. And they're all over him and doing what he's asking and having fun. And you can see in their eyes and their face that they are having a good time. They're not Mm -hmm. comatose like so many clinicians that want their horses to be absolutely dead unless they're telling them to do something. And it's through domination, even though it's not most of the the good clinicians now are not doing any physical abuse. But there's still mental abuse involved in dominating a horse. And he doesn't, and it's just it's just so inspirational for me to see how he can go out and work with those horses and how they can enjoy it, and he enjoys it, and the audience is going berserk, and and he never once gets on a horse. He's just mm-hmm. it's all liberty on the ground mm-hmm. kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but it's just beautiful. Just oh. and it shows it shows what can happen, what you know, what you can do. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I have to look that up. That's awesome. It reminds me, this is just a real quick story, Joe. uh, One of the last horses that I had in my life, and I'm really feeling the the messing of them, Um, but, you know, we go out to the the pasture and, and, you know, call him, and he would come running and racing from the 30-acre pasture, you know, and and, uh, so delighted to hang out and see us and... and, um, Anyway, um, I remember I I was I started learning clicker training, uh, which you you may be familiar with, where you set up the cue, they get the reward when they get the right answer, you know, and it just engages them in a different way. It's a it's a mental fun kind of training approach, and I taught my horse Taylor to fetch, and so <laughs> so we would be at Liberty, you know, he'd be at Liberty in the ten acre pasture, and he would still want to play the game, you know, even after we had just had a long ride and we were tired and you know and finished and stuff. It's like no, no, don't leave. I, I, I want to keep playing. This is this is fun. But it was because he wanted to, uh, not because I had made him or forced him, you know, or anything like that. Right. Um, and that's the kind of relationship we need to have. And I know our horse-loving audience, we love our horses. We love them. You know, we just almost can't live without them in our life, and yet we don't even know or have a clue about the mental abuse or the... You know, all the abuse that they receive, and if even if someone's not beating them, you know, or causing them bodily harm, we're hurting them mentally. We're hurting them emotionally. You know, when we don't provide. Yeah, when you show, I I, I was commenting. There's one particular clinician that will go unnamed, but you know, when he's working with a horse and showing you how to do this and how to do that, you know, he's a very good technician. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. Yeah. But his whole basis is getting a horse to be safe, sound, do what you want, 
and then move on to the next horse. Yes. You know, and and when he's sitting there talking to you with the horse standing by his side, it is it's comatose. I mean, it's just he's just, and he says that's what he wants. He wants yeah. the horse to be in a coma when he's not asking him to do something, and then when he's asking him to do do it, he's, the horse is saying, "Yes, sir, I'll do it right now." Mm-hmm. And mm. you know, that is it. It is not in a way is not unlike the way the old heads used to train yeah. by throwing them on the ground and scaring them to death and tying them up and doing all this stuff right. and dominating them by because of fear, you know. And yeah. the, this horse knew that he had no choice. Yes. He had to do what, and I don't want that, you know. I mean, first off, I mean, I, I don't want that for the relationship, but I don't want it for my horse either. If I'm standing there talking to you and Cash is standing beside me, I guarantee you he's going to be paying attention to you or to what's going on over here. He's going to be mm-hmm. curious about that. He'll be nibbling mm-hmm. on my hat or yeah. something. And he's yeah. engaged and involved and, and paying attention when I, when I want him to. And, yeah. Well, and you know, we want our horses to be our partners. You know, we we want to partner up with them. Uh, we don't know everything. They're the ones that are carrying us around, keeping us safe. You know, right. that's their that's part of their job. And they don't do that just for, you know, if they if they don't like you, <laughs> if you're yeah. not in good relationship with them. Um, and if they're you you want them to be their full, brilliant, joyful, incredible beings. You know, the powerful beings that they are. And you want to connect and partner with that, not dominate it. So I'm so right. glad you brought that point out. Yeah. Um, it just is a total transformation of a relationship. Oh, it's very important. It's critical. It's critically important. So, are there other life lessons you've learned from the herd that you want to share today? Well, I, I, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is "Life Lessons from the Herd," and it's the. The, the thing that we were finding as we went through, uh, and it took a while to get there because all the clinicians and books and tapes and CDs and things that I was watching and reading were telling me what to do, but they weren't telling me why. And mm-hmm. when we finally started spending some time in the pasture with the with the herd and watching the way they interact with each other and what their language was, then you know the the place that we've very quickly moved to was you know what we need to be doing is we need to be working with them and speaking to them from their side of the lead rope you mm-hmm. know showing them that we understand their language then we can take them to a new level with our language yeah but until we make that connection and and, and show and demonstrate that leadership and you have to it's a, it's a complex thing because horses are not humans they're not puppies either no. No. They have a, a genetic lifestyle that they're used to, and that that is a herd mentality. Number one, I mean, they they like to be in a herd. They demand. I mean, their genetics demand to be in a herd, not because it's fun to be around your buddies, but because it's safe. And a horse's number one concern in life is safety, security, yeah. uh, all the stuff that many people seem to claim. Uh, you know, as a mean horse or a wild horse or a crazy horse is all generated out of fear, not out of motivation to hurt or cause, you know, anybody any problems. And when a horse gets crazy, it's because he's scared to death of something in his past or what you're doing or what's going on. And you have to solve that and get him to trust you and to let you be the leader. And in any herd, 
you know, a, a dog pack is a leader and a bunch of followers. It's kind of like humans. Mm-hmm. You know, we got a leader and a bunch of us following along. Mm-hmm. But a horse herd is not that way. A horse has a horse herd has a pecking order, and everybody has their place. On the, I don't care if it's a hundred horses or five. You know, everybody has a place in that pecking order, and usually that place is challenged from time to time. You know, mm-hmm. if a, if the horse's number five feels like number four is not a good leader anymore, that horse will attempt to take over mm-hmm. that position, and mm-hmm. either number four will step up and say, no, 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 I'll get better, I'll be a better leader, uh, or he won't, and he'll wind up number five. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it, it goes with them, and that's the way they... That's the way they are. Leadership to me to them means who moves who. Uh-huh. Who causes who to move their feet. And that's one of the things that you learn from the clinicians is, you know, don't move your feet. Teach the horse to move theirs because when they when they give to you and trust you and say, Okay, I trust you to lead me because you can move my feet and you are moving my feet, then mm-hmm. Okay, I accept your, you know, your leadership. Your authority, and and you have to have that because that is genetic with them. That is that is a, a you know, you you too many people, you know, want to cuddle, buddle, use your cute puppy. You know, I'm not talking about being harsh or anything. It's just mm-hmm. you have to keep stepping up and making sure that they understand that you move their feet, they don't move yours. And and once you've you know you've taught them that it, it becomes very simple and you know we all two feedings a day we're mm-hmm. down there moving them around and I have taught every one of ours to follow me at liberty wherever because they all have to eat in specific areas because of pecking order to make mm-hmm. sure that one of them's not eating the other one's food and whatnot mm-hmm. and, and we don't have stalls you know so they don't go in stalls ever. They're out 24-7. Okay. And so I, it got to be easier to rather than using you know, sticks or halters or anything to get them from point A to point B. is just say, come on, walk with me. Mm-hmm. And so I taught every one of them to do that. And, and that alone, you know, is telling them in their own way that, 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 that you are the leader and they are the follower. Yeah. And they walk right with me and go there. And generally, I'll give them a treat when we get to wherever we're going. And they mm-hmm. say, "Oh, cool! I like that. Thank mm-hmm. you." I like that. And uh, and off we go. But what this was teaching us, back to your original question, you know, I told you I, I do run on. <laughs> but okay. the original question was was goes to working from their side of the lead rope, and we began to realize that hey, wait a minute, you know that that's not just horses. That's people, that's everything. You know, if you approach relationship with what does this person want to get out of this relationship and why is this person wanting to be in relationship and what can I do to improve that from their point of view, suddenly everything gets better. Yeah. And, you know, we've all heard it our whole lives. You know, the parents used to say, you know, don't do that until you've walked in their shoes or, you know, there's a hundred expressions for the same thing but basically working from the other person's end of the lead rope rather than your own you know so many times we approach lead rope uh, we approach a, a, a relationship with what do i want out of it mm-hmm. 
whether it's a person or a horse or a dog or whatever else, you know, you approach it with, you know, what do I want out of this and this is what I want you to do. And so I'm going to talk first and I'm going to do first and you listen to me mm-hmm. without any thought whatsoever to the other person right. or the other horse or, the, right. or whatever. And when you work from their side, everything gets better. It's a great lesson. That's a transformative lesson. We could yeah. apply that in one-to-one relationships and groups in countries. Right. You know, right. in policies. Exactly. And, you know, I've had, you know, People like yourself say, "Oh, come on, Joe. Jimmy, mean, are you telling me that you know because you have horses and you work with horses that you know that, that suddenly every time you meet somebody new, you're you know thinking consciously about I'm going to work from their side and and, and understand what they want out of this?" And I say, "No, I no, <laughs> I try. You well, know, and that's better than it used to be yeah. because <laughs> because you know I, I I'm just." Like everybody else, and I am thinking about it now, and I am focused on it, and I try, you know, to do better. So, it, so it is being better, and you know, over time, it gets even better than that. And you know, we are who we are, and we can only, you know, ascribe to trying to make who we are better. Yeah. And and I think we are we are doing that. And I certainly work. You know, work that way with within the relationship with Kathleen and in our relationship. I think a lot more about. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, that's what you want. What does she want? Mm-hmm, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's come on. This is a this is a uh, a true partnership. And, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. sit down and shut up, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a time to talk. There's a time to listen. And like you yeah. said, get on the other side of the lead rope. Let's let's. Uh, Let's share the journey, and, and hopefully they're doing the same thing with you. Um, and what does that create? It creates a, a really, really good relationship. Who Somebody said you know, the reason God gave you two ears and one mouth is you're supposed to listen twice as much as you talk. <laughs> 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 I think there's, I think there's okay. method there. There could be, yes. Uh, oh, gosh. I, would you consider sharing a funny story with us before we finish up here today? Can you think of something funny? Mm, I can't right oh. now. I'm sure you know. I'm sure that there. I'm sure that there. You know, there, there are things we've had lots of experiences with the horses and with each other and the dogs and Benji okay. and so forth that uh, have caught me flat-footed. <laughs> but uh, nothing comes to mind right now. That's fine. Kathleen Hart told me all the time about being too serious and too focused yeah. and you know relaxed and <laughs> smile and have a good time. I do know that I laugh at, at you know at Cash a lot. He's so intuitive and he's so quick. I, I'm constantly trying to teach him new things. You know, he's, he's, he uh, I taught him to bow. Oh, that's great. So, so then I thought it'd be nice if I bowed with him, so he knows when I when I stand next to him and I bow, he bows. Uh-huh. And I said, "Well, then I think it'd be cute if after that we bow to each other." Oh, I love that. Thanking each other, and so it took him about twice, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, to get that. Uh-huh. And and of course, once he learned that, he, he figured, "Oh." Wow, this is a way I can ask for a treat. That's right. Without without right. being pushy. 
and you know, so I'll walk in sometimes, and he'll you just bow right there, <laughs> or, or smile, one or the other. He he also knows how to smile, and I say no, 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 no. You gotta you gotta understand that 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 uh, it's when I when I ask for it, and I was teaching him to to uh, give me his to to lift up his left leg front mm-hmm. leg because mm-hmm. Benji does that you know I just point and say you know give me your foot and she, mm-hmm. she'll lift up her, her whichever one she lifts up I say no 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 the other foot mm-hmm. and she'll lift up the other foot and I thought hey it'd be cute if, if Cash would do that and we could set them side by side and you know say okay everybody your foot and, you know, and your mm-hmm. other foot mm-hmm. so I was going through the process of teaching him to lift up his foot and he got that on his left side so then I started on the right side and and, and had just done that one little session and gotten him finally by touching it and uh-huh. tugging on it and whatnot to lift it up and whatnot and then <laughs> Kathleen walked down it was late in the afternoon so we just sat down on the steps of the tack room and we're mm-hmm. chatting about the day and Cash was just there uh-huh. and hanging out and she started laughing and I said what and I turned around and looked at him and he was just smiling you know it's a kind of a throw your lips out, sort of show your teeth kind of thing, just smiling. And I said, no, 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 I told you, we're done with that, we're done with that. And I went back to whatever I was talking about with Kathleen, and, uh, and she started chuckling again, said, no, I'm not so sure you are. And I looked around, and he had his left foot in the air. <laughs> and I said, no, I told you, okay, we're done with that. It's done for today, just relax. And I leaned over and unhooked the lead rope because there's some grass not far away, and I Mm -hmm. just figured he'd go wander off and eat. And he just stood there, and I went back talking to her, and she, you know, again reacted to him. And I looked back, and dang if he didn't have his right foot up in the air. And I'd only done that with him one time, and I said, all right, you win. You win. I give up. (laughs) And I reached into the back room and got a treat for him and gave it to him. And and now we do this thing because he, he injured a tendon in the last snowfall huh. and and this is kind of a ritual that you know, for a long time I was changing the a wrap on it every morning and I'd unwrap it and check it for heat and was it any swelling and whatnot and then let it be free for a little while while he was eating and then put the uh, wrap back on and when I finally get through I would you know, rub him and say, that's a good boy, and I'd give him a treat and then take the halter off. Yeah. And he'd just stand there, stick mm-hmm. his nose in my ear or right mm-hmm. up my nose or something. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, what? What do you want? And he'd smile. <laughs> say, you want another one? And he'd just smile so big. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, all right, one more, and that's it, okay? Mm-hmm. One more. <laughs> and I'd pull it out and give it to him and say, now go on. And he'd turn around and go away. <laughs> I just, I'd laugh at it because he, he got to the point where he totally understood, that, you know, just one more, and he'd get it and he'd go without even without even blinking. So he thinks that he's got you well trained now. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and and, that's, and that's, I think that's part of Frederick Pinion's whole deal yeah. is that it's, it is a back and forth. You know, it is a back know, and forth. Yeah. You, you know, you do what I ask you to do, and I do what you ask me to do. <laughs> right, and, and we're we're giving and taking, and and uh, having a good time. But I think it's so. I think it's very very cool. You know, there are a lot of trainers that mm-hmm. disdain the use of treats, but I don't, mm-hmm. because a it's a very short circuit to communication. 
Yeah. It teaches the horse very quickly what you're trying to get across to him. Uh, and, and the standard, you know, release of pressure, which is the, right. the standard reward for a horse, is, right. you know, you pressure until they do it, and then you release that pressure, and that's their reward. But that's a right. negative reward, as Monty calls it. Right. Uh, and Monty doesn't like treats either, but he does like positive rewards. And, and yeah. to me, a treat yeah. is a positive reward because he likes it. He, he yeah. gets something out of it that he likes, not just something that I like. Right. And and it also gives him a way to communicate with me, to yeah. come up and say, hey, can I have a treat? No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not right now. We're doing something else or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And he gets that very quickly. And he oh, yeah. goes and minds his own business. Or, okay. or, you know, he comes up and says, can I have one? And I said, sure. Mm-hmm. And it's a nice, polite way to ask for it. And, yeah, I love it. And give it to him. And, and, and I like them being able to communicate, you know, with uh, with you because so much of a relationship, standard relationship with a horse, is one way. Yes. And nothing coming back other than obedience. And, yes. you know, I, I hate those words, you know, like domination and obedience and whatnot, yes. because I don't want the horse thinking that he must do it because I, by George, said it, and that's what I want. Yes. Uh, I want yes. the horse to do it because he wants to. Exactly. And, you know, they do try to communicate with us all the time until we've broken their spirit or broken their heart, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and then they give up. And um, and that doesn't, that's not okay with me. Yeah, we had we had one that came to us is Kathleen's sofa, she calls him. <laughs> he's twenty two now and he's been there and done that with everything and everywhere and he was a, a team roping horse as well as did some dressage. Loaded with scars from spurs on both yeah. sides. Oh, yeah. And his feet were just a mess and whatnot. And the the first day we took him out into the pasture in California, whatever you we, that we laughingly call a pasture because it was rock and dirt. Uh, he literally, for three days, he just stood there with his mouth kind of hanging open. Mm. Had no clue. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he'd, he'd, he'd probably never been in an open area with other horses like that. Mm-hmm. He'd probably never, you know, his genetics were so far buried that he'd, you know, he, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. Yeah. And he immediately became the last on the totem pole because everybody oh, yeah. else, I think, realized that. <laughs> you know, he yeah. didn't. Ah, we got one that doesn't have a clue. Okay, oh, yeah. okay. bottom, yeah. <laughs> bottom for you. Mm-hmm. And then we got a rescue from uh, the Rescue League of Iowa, American Saddlebred Baby. She was mm-hmm. about seven months old when she oh, came wow. to us, and she knew nothing. I mean, she we had adopted her from a. We'd gone up to see Marty, and he was doing a. A clinic, and he asked us to just sit in on it, and and he'd taken cash and another horse and my stepson up, and uh, we have a three horse trailer. And Kathleen says you'll never leave town with a, that trailer and an empty stall again, mm-hmm. <laughs> because we came home with Mouse, this American <laughs> saddlebred that they had sent to Monty Roberts as a way to make it more adoptable to uh-huh. you know, for him to use in demos and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. And it's a horse that you know jumped out of the pen the first time they tried to load it in a trailer, and it took six men to get him in the trailer just to come west. Mm. And in 15 minutes, Monty was using this baby as a podium, just leaning on his back, talking to the mm-hmm. students and whatnot, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her back. And yeah. it, was, it was very cool. But anyway, when she came to us, she needed she needed to learn 
some lessons because she'd never been subject to a normal herd. She'd been in awful, awful situation mm-hmm. where she was. Yeah. And uh, so we put her in with Skeeter in the beginning, and so Skeeter got to be a horse. She became the bottom, and he yeah. got to be next to the bottom. Yes, yeah. yeah. And he was a very benevolent, you know, we call him Uncle Skeeter to uh-huh. her. And they still hang out a lot together. That's when great. she gets upset or nervous, she'll go find Skeeter and kind of hang with him. Yeah. And, um, oh, Heather just makes my makes my heart smile. It's fun to to watch the the way they work, and every one of them are different. I mean, they, they, yeah, you know, they, they the, the people who say you know all horses are the same, or you should treat them all the same, or train them all the same, or something. No, you can't do no. that. No, you know, they're no. all absolutely just like people. Too much, Joe, though, actually. <laughs> in some ways, isn't it? Yeah. Joe, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for I, sharing your heart, sharing your passion, sharing and making a difference with horses literally all over the world. This is such we, important information. We get so many emails every day from people who have totally changed the way their horses are living, and that's changing the way they're living. And, yes. And it's yes. the kind of, kind of stuff that you know, makes our day and our fuel to keep going because it, when you wake up sometimes you say well, what am I doing you know I don't mm-hmm. I, I mean, normally people who are doing what we're doing and writing books and stuff like that have been around for 30 years getting experience and whatnot and you you, know, you run through these periods of thinking that you know I don't have any business doing this what do I know and yeah. Yeah. you read some some of these emails coming back in and you got no choice you got to keep going yes we'll keep going Ah, and speaking of keeping going, you've got a new book coming out, Born to be Wild, The Soul of a Mustang, Riding the Winds of Change. Right. That looks wonderful. Uh, so, listeners, everybody go to your website, uh, thesoulofahorse.com. Uh, check out Joe's blog. It is wonderful. You will love it. Um, and, Joe, we're going to have to get back together and continue the conversation. <laughs> I'd love to do it. And uh, ho- hopefully I'll shut up and let you talk next <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you. maybe talk to Kathleen a little bit beforehand oh. because she's kind of learned the art. The the art. <laughs> the art. The art of shutting me up. <laughs> oh no 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 no! Don't shut up. We well, I love talking to you. You're great. Well, I appreciate <sighs> okay. it. You are too, and I enjoyed it Thank very much. And, uh, Thank you. Look forward to doing it again. Actually. You bet. Okay, good. Well, I'll get back in touch and uh, what definitely want to find out more. And when your new book comes out, I think we should reconnect also. So okay. I'm very excited about what you're doing. Thank you. That'll be super. Okay. All right, Joe. Well, thanks so much, and I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. For more information or to listen to other podcasts, go to valheart.com forward slash blog. And if you're someone who values a non-invasive, holistic solution to resolving problems with your dogs, cats, and horses, and you want better behaved, healthier, and happier animals, just go to my website at valheart.com to apply for a complimentary happy animal assessment session. And be sure and remember to look for my CDs on iTunes. Learning how to talk with animals is fun and will change your life. So while you're there at my site, get my free Quick Start Animal Talk course and check out the world's first complete animal communication made easy system. May the love of animals bless you, teach you, inspire you, heal you. 
and reconnect you to the circle of life.